You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe, and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. Um, well, I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis Church, and really glad that you've gathered here with us today on this um, holiday weekend. Thanks for uh, carving out a little bit of time uh, to be here, to make your way into this warehouse. Uh, really glad that you have. This is our 35th week in our study and our journey through the, the book of Mark, a series we've entitled Messiah, Seeing, Believing, and Following the Messiah. If you don't yet have a copy of the Gospel of Mark in journal form, uh, they're on the back table. Uh, our minister Jordan's back there, and he will uh, hook you up with one if you want one. Um, just let him know. You can just hold your hand up. He'll walk it to you. It's yours for free. Um, so you can kind of work your way through journaling down some different thoughts, ahas, questions, um, and whatnot as we work our way verse by verse through this. But I want to set us some context so that for those who haven't been around or for those like myself who need a refreshment and a refresher every single Sunday on kind of where we are, I want to let you know what's just happened in the setting leading up to uh, this passage that we're going to be working with today. So Jesus has just most recently healed a deaf and a mute man. Then he's teaching uh, at least 4,000 Gentiles Um, not counting women and children, and he does so, he feeds over 4,000 people with a couple fish and a few pieces of bread. And then he heals a blind man, but he does it in two stages, which many see as symbolic for the the blindness of the disciples um, in that, not that they were blind, but it's how they only saw certain things about Jesus, but they didn't see him with clarity. They didn't understand him in fullness. Um, they saw certain aspects of him and they received him in certain ways of what him being Messiah looked like, but they didn't understand it in the way that they needed to, um, which is essential for the follower of Jesus, to see him for who he is. And the same is true for you. Um, It is essential for us to understand that the work and the nature of the God-man Messiah, um, who, for instance, did not come to be served, which is what the disciples were expecting but he came to serve. Um, another example is uh, they expected him to come and rule and reign with power, but he came to suffer and to die. So they saw him in certain ways and aspects of what it meant for him to be Messiah, but they didn't understand the entirety of his mission and what that would look like to bring about an eternal and real kingdom and not an earthly, fallen, merely political kingdom, which is what they were expecting. They were hoping that he would just show up as the Messiah, get rid of Rome, uh, everyone who's not a Jew, right, have, just have them removed and begin to serve the Jewish people. And Jesus comes and serves Gentiles, he heals Gentiles, he preaches against the Jewish leaders, their paradigm had to be shifted. And so this, along with other things, calls Jesus to ask the disciples privately, which is what we looked at last Sunday with Pastor Don leading us through who do you say that Christ is, like Jesus asked Peter in Mark eight twenty nine, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Friends, Jesus wants you to know who he is. He wants you to know him. It's why you're here. He wants you to know something about him, to embrace a truth about who he is today that you're not grasping in its fullness and clarity. 
He wants you to know something about you in light of him that's going to make you more whole and steady. He wants to encourage you today. And he wants his, his 12 disciples to know him here in this text. And that's what he's getting at in the following passage, starting in verse 31 of Mark chapter 8. Let's get to work. So he began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man, his preferred title for himself, that he must, as the Messiah, suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. See that in verse 32? Crystal clear. Very, very clear. The, the, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, they're going to formally and publicly reject Jesus. And those three groups, when they show up together, they form what is called the Sanhedrin. That's basically the Supreme Court of the Jews. So Jesus is saying that this was going to be a complete and total official rejection of Jesus being the Messiah by Israel's highest court. And so Jesus is unpacking step by step, essentially, the Father's plan to bring orphans into the family of God, to bring haters of God, to become children of God and lovers of God, right? He's unpacking how that's going to happen, how he's going to form and create his promised kingdom. He's going to suffer many things, be rejected, die, beat death. This is how he brings about his kingdom. Now, one of the many things I like about Jesus is his poise. And that's what I loved about watching Michael Jordan play basketball. The more intense the moment, the more important the moment, the better he was, the better he delivered, which to this day is why I don't like LeBron James. You're privy to your own moment, youngsters who think the man is better than Michael Jordan. But that's not what today's for. We're going to do like LeBron, and we're just going to pass it for now, okay? Um, But my dad, (laughs) uh, my dad would always say that Michael Jordan had ice water in his veins. The more hot, the more intense, he just chilled. I love that. Throughout his entire life, Jesus knew that he was born to live perfectly. Jesus knew throughout his entire life that he was to die as a substitute for wicked and awful sinners. Even here, Jesus knows exactly what's on the line. And as the intensity grows and the moment gets hot, the more focused and poised and simply matter of fact he becomes. I'm going to go there, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to die, I'm going to beat death. Let's go. I love that about Jesus. And as Jesus begins to shift his attention directly towards the cross in Jerusalem, he explicitly warns his disciples of what to expect, of what's going to happen to him. He's preparing his followers not to expect a triumphant political Messiah, but he's he's getting his followers to understand that he's the one whose mission was going to be completed through suffering and death. And he knows it's going to take a radical overhaul of the thinking of the 12 disciples. They have to get an entirely new paradigm to see how Jesus is to fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies made about him, how he is to make all things new, how he's to bring about his better kingdom and his new kingdom. 
And so the, the central focus of Christ here in his mission is dominated by complete submission and obedience to God the Father. And his destination is the cross on Golgotha. And he's poised. His life is pointing in one direction. The finish line is in full view for Jesus and his face is set like flint. He's committed. Nothing's gonna deter Jesus. Nothing's gonna cause him to, to drift or lead him away. He's as solid as steel. He will not give in. It's the cross. He stepped over this line. The decision for Jesus has long been made. And he's not going to hesitate, slow down, let up, or back away from this moment. He sees the Father's plan unfolding. He knows it. He's embraced it. It's set in motion. And he's not looking for earthly stardom or fleeting fame or religious popularity or temporal comfort. You know, all the sorts of things that you and I pursue like a thirsty animal goes after water. He wants none of this. He knows what's at stake. Jesus lives totally and completely submissive to God's plan. Always, always, always obeying God in perfect obedience. He lives perfectly and he lives perfectly by faith. And he willingly and strategically, he sets his face and his pace marching on towards the cross. And the road to the cross is a narrow road. It's a rough road. It's a lonely road. Only his mother and a couple friends will, will stick with him even to the end where he's on the cross. But nonetheless, his mission is very clear. He must become sin for sinful mankind. He must suffer and die in the place for sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus in this moment must continue in his life of perfection. He must suffer for you and for me. He must become sin on our behalf. He must die on a criminal's cross as our necessary substitute. He must experience death, endure death, and he must kill death. And it's through faith in this, my friend, that God gives you life. Nothing's going to deter Jesus. Nothing's going to lure him away. Nothing's going to change his mind. Nothing's going to delay him. He's not going to flinch in the face of suffering or adversity, and he's not going to cower down at the thought of becoming a sacrifice for haters. He's not going to hesitate on this mission. He's going to endure this mission all the way to Golgotha with joy that's set before him. There's no negotiating with the enemy. He's the Messiah. He's the one who's been sent into the world by God on a mission to save fallen mankind, to save you. And he's telling his disciples, this is how it must go down. And here's these 12 disciples. They've given up their various careers to follow Jesus. Many of them, if not all of them, have even had to change relationship dynamics with family and friends to accommodate walking closely to this rabbi. And Jesus tells them, that he's going to endure and suffer beatings and die and beat death. But being a diehard disciple, you can't fathom the words and on the third day be raised. You're stuck on suffer, rejected. Like, let's, let's not get to the point where you've got to beat death. Let's just work it out where you don't have to die. Like, we can protect you. Like, you don't have this. So I believe you can see why this would require a... a reorientation of their thinking. You see, Jesus knew exactly what he was going to suffer about the rejection, even of his own disciples, the betrayal of Judas, the rejection by Peter. They all run in fear. 
He knew that he would die on a Roman cross on Golgotha. And he also knew that he would beat death and all of it would be painful. None of this would be easy. He ex- what he experienced wasn't easier because he was the God-man, Jesus Christ. If anything, it was more difficult because he was the God-man, Jesus Christ. He experienced pain just as you and I, if not more intense. He knows suffering. He knew it was at stake, but he also knew what would come of it all. But the disciples didn't. They didn't get it. That's why Peter speaks the way that he speaks. Look in verse 32. Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke Jesus. All right? He receives that rebuke. And he turns and he looks at the disciples. He sees the disciples. He sees their their despair and their confusion. He understands where Peter's coming from. He sees the, the confusion in the eyes of the disciples. Perplexed on how this is going to play out. And he looks at Peter, but he looks beyond Peter. He looks, he looks at the enemy who's trying to lure him away in this moment through Peter. And he says, get thee behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. My friend, that is a picture of us. If we're ever in the Bible, we're right here. Over and over, dozens and dozens of times a day, you and I set our minds on the things of man, not on the things of God. And here's where so much frustration in our life can be found. That's why Solomon penned the words that he did in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Don't set your mind on the things of man. In all your ways acknowledge him. Set your mind on the things of God and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Don't set your mind on the things of man but you fear the Lord and you turn away from evil, that will be healing to your flesh. That will be refreshment to your bones. That's what you're looking for. It's not in following yourself. It's in submitting these things to the Lord. And my hope is that God will be gracious to you and to me today, just as gracious as he was to Peter when he carefully and lovingly rebuked him. And that we would respond to this rebuke from the Holy Spirit with humble confession and admittance, not with this proud excuse or a stiffened neck to what the Lord is trying to do in our hearts. And now Jesus, he begins to realign their focus on how they must set their minds on the things of God, not on the things of man. He does it with these words. So he calls in, look 34, he calls in the crowd that were around the disciples because there was a private moment with the 12. Then he pulls in the crowd and the disciples and he begins to teach this group of people. He says, if anyone would come after me to be like me, to pursue me, let him first deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. I'm the authority. I'm the leader. You follow me. And then we're going to work through this passage, but Uh, This was going to be probably an hour and 45-minute sermon, which no matter how good that might be, which it's never good if I ever go that long. um, I've been close, but not quite that long. Um, No one wants to sit through that, right? So I broke it up into two different portions. We're going to preach the second half next Sunday, all right? But here's, just for context's sake, I want to continue to work through this passage. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. 
For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Think about it. Gain the whole world and you lose your soul. You forfeit your soul. At the end of it all, what can you actually give in exchange for your soul? For whoever's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the son of man, talking about himself, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Peter, you and and these others, anyone else, if anyone wants to follow me, you must deny yourself and lay aside, get, get rid of yourself and your selfish thinking and your independent thoughts and your career advancing desires as to why you're following me. You sacrifice all that and you follow me. This is at the very core of Christianity. This is the essence of the Christian life. Friend, this is the happy life you're looking for. This is the happy, fulfilled life you're looking for. This is the way of peace and hope and comfort and deep-seated joy. This is listening, trusting, and working to understand the things of God. Jesus is saying that we must shed our way of of, of, of doing things, of thinking, and we must begin to seek God and how he wants us to do life. And so Jesus really presents us with two roads, two options here. There's an accepting of Jesus that looks like a certain thing that he describes for us. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But then there's a denying of Jesus that's going to look a certain way. It, it, like if anyone, in other words, Whoever desires to come after me, to follow me, to trust me, it must look like this. These are my terms because you're following me. And, And whoever intends on following me, my way, my truth, it requires that they first deny themselves. Now, to deny is to disown, repudiate, refuse to accept or even be associated with, to reject, to abandon, to give up, to turn one's back on, to cast off and lay aside, to leave far behind, forsake, refuse, disregard, renounce, to pay no attention to, to say no to. To deny yourself is complete refusal of one's self-interest. It is sacrifice. It is surrendering your rights to something else or someone else. To follow Jesus is to say no to your inclinations. To follow Jesus is say no to your natural desires, no matter how normal they may feel. And if they fit, right, it, you, you submit these things, these natural desires, these inclinations, you, you submit these things and your way and your desires and your life, you submit these things to him, and then you take those as you submit to him, those inclinations, those natural desires, and if they fit within biblical obedience, then carry on. Have a blast. But if your inclinations and your natural desires and what feels so normal for you If it doesn't fit within biblical obedience, you deny yourself of those desires. And you follow not yourself. You follow Jesus. This is Christianity. This has always been Christianity. This will always be Christianity. This is the way. Or else we deny Jesus, think little to nothing of the cross, and continue following Sin and darkness in our way, all the way to death, or making shipwreck of our own faith. 
To deny those natural inclinations and urges and desires requires that we have faith. It requires that we be humble. And this is hard for us because we're so proud. And because we hate saying no to ourselves. We hate it. We hate saying no to our urges, our wants, our desires. This is perhaps the hardest thing for anyone to do. To deny yourself. We live our lives seeking the fulfillment of our needs, our cravings, our wants. We don't even like saying yes if it's going to take too long. Just forget about it. It's taking too long. we got to go somewhere else. Because we cherish our own way. We cherish our own comfort. We cherish our own comforts. We cherish our timing on things, our rights, our privileges. We live to see ourselves free in every sense of the word. We want no limits. We want no rules. We want no one telling us what to do, what to say, what to think, or how to act. We desire true and full independence completely. We all want to be God. We want to be God so bad. And if you get in the way of me being God and being autonomous and making my own choices, the anger I feel towards you, you should not get in my way. Who are you? to tell me I can't. And you even look in the mirror and they say the same thing. You grow in disgust when you realize, despite your effort, you can't be God. And it sickens you. Because if it feels good, I should be able to do it. I want to call my own shots. If it feels right, who's, who can tell me I'm wrong if it feels right? Yet here, Jesus is looking us in the eye. He's, he's looking into our hearts and he's saying to us, Trust me with this. Trust me with your way. Trust me with your timing on things and your impatience, your rights, and your desires. It's not all about that. Just follow me and you're going to see. I'm not asking you to put all those aside. I'm just asking you to give them to me and trust me with those things. And let me teach you how these things are to work. I mean, this is at the heart of Jesus' words when he said in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will work themselves out. All these other things will be added to you. Now, Jesus isn't being vague. He's not being unclear. He's not being shady. Even in the text, it says he said this clearly. He's not trying to be soft as he pulls, as he's kind of like recruiting to his kingdom. There's no bait and switch with Jesus. He tells you the truth up front. And he's telling you the truth from this text this morning, unashamedly telling you the truth. And you desire the truth. And I know that many people think the current generation can't handle the truth, but you can. And you desire it and you want it. You don't want someone telling you part of the truth to sell you on something. You want the whole story, you want the full truth. Friend, Jesus gives you the full truth right here. He's upfront, very clear, and bold. To follow Jesus as a Christian in obedience, you must deny yourself. And if you've been told that in becoming a Christian, you can call your own shots, all your dreams are going to come true, your health is going to get better, you're going to have too much money, you don't even know how to spend it all, and all your cares are going to go away, you've been tricked and lied to. That is not Christianity. Being a Christian requires significant sacrifice. In fact, at the very heart and core of our hope and faith is the sacrifice of our own Savior. 
is the suffering of our own Savior. But not only does Jesus tell us to deny ourselves, he tells us we must take up our cross daily. And to take up the cross is to set off for public execution. It's not just to be impatient with something and having to endure waiting five more minutes for your nuggets and fries. Now, this phrase meant something specific to this first century context in Jerusalem. You know, phrases have meaning based on the the culture and setting that they come from. For instance, September 11th meant nothing before 2001. But now anytime you say September 11th, particularly if you were alive and adult age or older, it means a lot. It brings up images, emotions. You probably remember where you were that day because that phrase means a lot. And the same thing is true for phrases like Black Lives Matter, like leukemia, diabetes, cancer, heart disease. Recently, up until three years ago, two and a half years ago, social distancing? Now it means something, huh? Pandemic isn't just for Hollywood films. Pandemic means something. It didn't really. Not to us. Not to our generation. Not like it did the last two and a half years. And depression. My point is phrases and words carry certain meaning and significance as they're derived from a particular culture. And this phrase here, it meant something very unique to the men and women of first century Jerusalem. It was nearly a a verbatim quote that Roman guards and executioners would speak immediately before a criminal would bend over, pick up his cross, carry it and drag it on a road leading out of town, drop it when and where they were told, and then they would lie down on it and be nailed to it or tied to it They would be lifted up, dropped into a hole, and they would die. It was the phrase and language of the Roman government. It was their term. It was their phrase. It belonged to them. And they had long perfected the brutal art of torture by death of crucifixion. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to surrender your life completely and take on mine. There's no casual follower of Jesus Christ. Christianity is not a spectator sport. There's no leisure to Christianity. You don't casually take up your cross. To even consider taking up your cross should put a lump in our throats. It is intentional effort. It's knowingly sacrificing your own will and your dreams and your urges, your inclinations and your desires. To take up your cross always meant suffering, sacrifice, and death. No one was ever told, take up your cross and live more than a few hours. It always meant death. You don't drift to following Jesus in obedience as a disciple. You don't drift to taking up your cross. It is completely intentional. It is striving. It is disciplining. It is training. It is knowingly entering inconvenience and suffering. So not only is Jesus crushing the disciples' dreams of this physical earthly kingdom made up of health, wealth, and prominence, But now he's taking it further and telling them that in order to follow him, to be in his kingdom, they must be willing to sacrifice everything for him. And I'm afraid that in 2022 America, most of us are missing what it actually means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And what it looks like to play a key component as an ambassador of reconciliation in the kingdom of God here on earth. Friend, the way to glory and obedience and honor and happiness with Jesus is the way of the cross. 
But there's got to be another way, right? I mean, for us. I mean, we can kind of fit Christianity in kind of like, a, like an easier way, right? Where we don't have to like surrender as much. I mean, we, we've advanced so much as a society, haven't we? Like, does it still require that we like commit at this level? I mean, we're busier than they used to be. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Yeah, but what about deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus? Well, right now, I've just got some things I'm working through. I've got some personal goals and agendas and a dream that really doesn't fit the whole taking up the cross idea. Well, then you simply don't want Jesus. You want you. You see, you're not denying yourself. In that struggle, you're not, desi- you're not denying yourself. Do you see it? You're convinced that you can find joy and satisfaction in other things and in other ways other than living in obedience before God and following Jesus. My friend, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Dying to ourself is surrendering to Jesus, submitting our everything to him. And of course, we read through the New Testament and church history, and we learn of the disciples who actually die deaths as martyrs. And even today, all around the world, precious followers of Jesus are dying today as martyrs, being burned alive today, stabbed, beheaded, put on crosses all around the world. And they're experiencing it for the sake of Christ and his gospel. And you might not experience this in your life, but we're all called to a figurative cross of sacrificial living in order to follow Jesus the Messiah, as he's called us to. And this is the concept that Paul's getting at in Galatians 2.20 when he says, man, I've been crucified with Christ. I've denied myself. This isn't me anymore. I'm dead. I've died to him. It is no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives within me. And now the life that I do live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, while there's definitely sacrifice and denial found in the taking up of the cross, my friend, There's also joy. There's joy. In the words of Jesus, there's joy right here. You see this take up phrase, take up your cross? This word is very interesting. You know, it's the same word used in Mark 15, 24 with those who are casting lots for the clothing of Jesus as he was crucified naked before the crowds. And whoever won in the casting of lots, like paper, rock, scissors, more or less, Whoever won would take up the clothing for himself because he won the garments. This is to claim honor for oneself as a gambler picks up his winnings. So so there's something about taking up the cross here that Jesus sees as winning. It should be something that at some level we're excited about. Jesus knows that when we deny ourselves and pick up our cross, he knows that we're actually winning. We're not losing. We're living. We're not dying. We're not forfeiting our soul. We're saving it. He knows that we're gaining, that we're not sacrificing, actually. He knows that as we pick up our cross and follow him, that we're receiving. We're not giving away. He knows that it's the way of happiness and not being remorseful. Picking up the cross is like picking up your earnings after winning. And this echoes the parable of the treasure in the field 
And the pearl of great price found in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found it. He covers it up so no one else will find it. And then in his joy, he goes and sells every single thing he has to buy that field. And that wasn't losing. He got a good deal. He was excited about it. It's just like the same one of this merchant who was looking for fine pearls, and he found a pearl of great value. He goes and he sells everything to go buy it. He loses it all. He sacrifices everything to go get that pearl. He was happy about it. It was a good deal. Yes, denying yourself in this way is costly. But my friend, the return on following Jesus and taking up your cross, the return on this is absolutely and in every way eternally worth it. There's a particular joy that Jesus knows that we're going to experience as we follow him. But have you experienced this joy? Have you trusted Jesus to be the savior of your sins and not trusted him with your Mondays and your Tuesdays? In other words, are you lacking clarity on who Jesus is? Like the blind man, only partially seeing at first, partially understanding Jesus. Like the disciples, only understanding certain parts of his work and not all of it. My friend, that's a frustrating and confusing way to live the Christian life. You see, we're not only to trust Jesus with our sins and our eternity, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow him and trust him today. So yes, you might have followed him and trusted him as savior, but do you trust him as master? Is he the one in control of your today? You've given him your eternity. Have you given him your Wednesday? You trust him as savior. Do you submit to him and follow him and trust him as Lord? Do you follow him? Or are you expecting him to follow you and make your dreams come true? If so, you're not following him for him. You're trying to get him to follow you for you. But trusting Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins is beautiful. Trust him with that. But it's another thing altogether to trust him with today. I'm asking you, Jesus is commanding you. He's offering you a way of life and joy and hope and peace. He says, come to me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. But what an opportunity, what an offer, what a life. I mean, for those who are Christians, I'm encouraging you today from this passage to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ daily. And this is more than reading your Bible. This is the posture of your heart. It's how you go about life. It's how you determine what you do, how you do it, your tone, your decisions. It informs your words, your way, your reactions, the things you do and how you do them. So yes, trust Jesus with your sins, but trust him with your life, not just your death. To trust him as savior is trusting him in your death. To trust him as Lord and master and following him daily is trusting him with your life. Trust him with both. And for my friends here who aren't Christians yet, oh, you're shouldering so much on your own. And it's not working. It's never meant to work. It's not intended to. It never will. And rather than denying yourself, you're seeking to gain approval through yourself, through your work, through your performance. And that's not the way of humility. It's really the way of pride. And the call to deny yourself is a call to life to receive God's approval through his action for you. So I encourage you to deny yourself and stop fighting and embrace Jesus and pursue the Christian life. Embrace grace and discover peace and find mercy. 
You know, so very often we struggle in and through our life because we're trying to deny ourselves kind of. We're trying to like follow Jesus, sort of. And we try to take up our cross-ish. And this is so frustrating. At the heart of it is just a hypocritical thing about life, trying to go in two different ways at the same time, trying to live in two different places. And tension comes from us not following in complete and humble surrender and obedience. So Christian... Surrender. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. It's not about you. It's about him. You follow him. You lose your life in him. You follow him. Like Psalm 37, 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. Trust your way to the Lord. Rest in him today. Not your performance. Rest in him, not trying to get even. Rest in him, not looking for revenge. Rest in him, not the mirror. Rest in him. Rest. Stop trying to gain just more wealth and riches of the world. What if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? My friend, follow him. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and find life. Realign your lives on the reality of the gospel today. Refocus. Let's do that together through sharing in communion. Let's focus on the source of our hope and life, the very life and death of Jesus Christ. The bread is symbolic of that life of perfection that he lived for you because you are a wicked, messed up sinner, just like I am. And we needed a representative to take our place, living a perfect life without sin. And that's Jesus. And that is symbolic of that bread that you're going to grab hold of. And you're going to dip it into the juice of the wine. That red liquid, symbolic of the blood of Christ that was shed on a cross as he was bearing the very wrath of God that you deserve for your sin. The punishment that you deserve for your disobedience, your rebellion, the things that you've done wrong, the things you didn't do that you should do that were right. Jesus suffers on the cross for those things as your substitute, taking your place where you deserve to be. So you take that bread and you dip it in that juice and wine and you remember this is the source of your hope. This is what was given so that you could be invited in to follow him. And all he asks, not that you perform, that you deny yourself, that you surrender, that you do less, and that you trust him. We're going to have servers on either side of the stage. We're going to have self-serve stations in the back. And I ask that this just be for Christians and that you use this moment to realign yourself. And if there's someone here that thinks, man, the week that I've had, there's no way. God will strike me dead if I take communion today. I want you to be first. Because you don't take this based on your performance or how well you lived the Christian life this week. This is only about the performance and the perfection of Jesus. So by faith, you take communion, acknowledging where the forgiveness of your jacked up week is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ because he loves you and he wants you to experience that, the weightlessness of forgiveness, the joy and the peace that he gives.
Let me pray for us. Father, add your special blessing to this time, please. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And we proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has lived, he's died, he's risen, and he's coming again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be on this time of remembering, be on this time of communion, be on this time of faith as we grab hold of what it is that gives us life. And would you remain with us always, even through the end of the age, and our clumsiness, and our fear, and our depression, and our sin, abiding with us, walking with us, pardoning us, forgiving us, until we see you face to face. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Now Christian, when you're ready, please come and take remembering the finished work of Jesus Christ. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.